You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. The Tower of Babel, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. Uh, I, I think we probably heard it a few times for sure growing up if we were in the church. Uh, we're doing summer stories, stories that maybe we've heard growing up or maybe we haven't, but we're relearning and learning the old stories. If you have any questions at any time, just holler them out. But if you don't want to holler them out, you want to uh, text them, feel free to text as well. I will get those and have some questions from the first service. Uh, again, learning and relearning the old stories. Um, we're not asking, is this story true? We're asking other questions because for me, uh, it, it feels like that question sometimes gets us hung up. Is this story true? And what is the answer to that story except yes or no? Uh, yes or no really doesn't have the power to transform us. And so I think there's more important questions that we ask. And, and they're these. Why do we still tell this story? What is the logic of the story? And what does God want to say to us through this story? Last three weeks, we talked about Noah, Jonah, and Gideon. If you're interested in those stories, go back and listen. But today, as you know, we're talking about the Tower of Babel, which comes from Genesis 11, 1 through 9. And I want us to experience the story again. I know you just heard it video form, but I think multiple ways is really helpful. So hear this again. I'll go quickly because I know you just heard it. All people on the earth had one language and and the same words. When they traveled east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them hard. Uh, they said they used the bricks for stones and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. And let's make a name for ourselves so that we won't be dispersed over all the earth. That is the key phrase. I'm going to read it again. That's the key phrase of the whole story. Let's make a name for ourselves so that we won't be dispersed over all the earth. Then the Lord came down and see the, saw the city and, uh, that the humans built. And the Lord said, there is now one people, and they all have the one language. This is uh, what they have begun to do. And now all they plan to do will be possible for them. Come, let's go down and mix up their language so they won't understand each other's language. Then the Lord dispersed them from there all over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. Its name is Babel because there the Lord mixed up the language. Babel means confusion. And he dispersed them all over the earth. Yeah? Here's some background about how I think we need to understand this story. Uh, First of all, sometimes I think we read this story in a way where uh, we talk about going up the tower. Humans going up the tower to either, um, A, they're prideful. uh, B, they're trying to find a back door into heaven instead of going through the pearly gates. Some people even talk about trying to overthrow God in their pride. right? I've heard uh, even college professors talk about it this way. Um, but scholars agree that this is likely a Mesopotamian ziggurat, which is probably the coolest name for anything I've ever heard in my whole life. Um, take it with a grain of salt. Scholars are you know, scholars, so they're always scholarizing about something. But um, this is half of a Mesopotamian ziggurat. There are people up there. Uh, this is the facade, the front part. It would have been much larger. It was lost under a sand dune, and they ended up finding it a few hundred years ago. Um, but this is the beginning of a tower, of a ziggurat. Uh, people, the scholars assume that this story of the Babel is about Mesopotamia's uh, Babylon, the Babylonian ziggurat, which was the most famous ziggurat 
in the whole world. And here's the thing we need to know about ziggurats to understand the story. Ziggurat towers weren't about going up. They were about getting God or the gods to come down. They were often placed next to the temple, and the hope was that they would come down and end up in their temple. There was a room at the top. It had all the furnishings that anyone would need, a bedroom, food, other things, uh, luxury, leisure. And the hope was that, well, here's what it is. This is why they built them. Because early people believed that the gods had needs. And if they could meet the needs of the gods, then the gods would meet their needs. Would give them protection. Would help them when they needed help. And help them live the life that they wanted. So they built these towers with all these needs for the gods. So that the gods would come down into their temple, protect them, and serve them, and bless them. You know how I preach? Had heart hands. Something for God wants us to know, feel, and do. And my three points are right here, and they start with W, because that's what pastors do, I guess, now, uh, is that it, uh, wounds within and weight. Those are the three points that we're going to center on today. What does God want us to know with this idea of towers and being built and, and ziggurats? Nowhere in the story does anyone go up the tower, but God does come down the tower. So they get what they want, except that when God comes down the tower, God is not pleased. God is not happy. Because I think they're trying to manipulate the gods into getting them to do what they want to do. But ultimately what I think is happening is there's this thing about this wound. I think we all have a wound because we miss the presence of God. There's something in us that's broken, that's rebellious, that's, that's sinful is the old language. Uh, it comes to this wound about missing God. Just eight chapters before the story, humans were kicked out of the garden. That's where God's presence was. They were kicked out. They missed it. And so they build this tower to try to reclaim God's presence. But maybe they're doing it in a way that's manipulative or broken or perverted in a way that benefits them. I think, though, ultimately what I'm taking away from the story is that we have, we all have been feeling this wound. We all have this wound in us about missing the presence of God in our life. And I think that's what this story is about. It's about humanity trying to build a tower so God can come down so they can reconnect with God's presence. If that's what it's about, why would God be mad about that, right? Why would God be upset about them trying to reconnect with God's presence? Here's why our story says they wanted to make a name for themselves so that they won't be dispersed over the earth. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted the biggest, baddest God on the planet so that they could rule over their neighbors or take what they wanted or get protection from everybody. It was about them, their glory, and their mission. And if you remember the original mission back in Genesis 1 and 2, the original mission was to be fertile and multiply, to fill the earth. Why did they want to make a name for themselves? So they wouldn't be dispersed over all the earth. God wants them to be dispersed over the, all the earth, but they they don't want to. And so they want to build this tower so that they can manipulate God so that they don't have to do what God wants them to do. They want to build a tower for God to come down so they can get what they want, when they want it, how they want it. It's about their comfort, their mission, their directive. But I don't want to just paint them in a bad light because I think we all have this wound within us. And we've all been trying to heal it. We all try to figure out how to get God's presence in our life and sometimes in a destructive way. This is my son, Theo, uh, Theophilus James Lackey, the youngest of three. My hands are full with him. As you know, many people have just been sitting around their houses for about how many? 47 weeks? 
five years. I have no idea how long we've been in our houses now. His, his patterns and routines are completely disrupted, right? Uh, he's a very physical kid. He's a very extroverted kid. He loves to have people around and connection. And he's so physical. One of his favorite things to do is just go down by the river and throw rocks for about an hour and a half as far and as hard as he can. It just loves it. I mean, it's maybe the thing that keeps his attention the most. Uh, and so all those things put together, quarantine, physical, extroverted, what happens is when he gets bored with what he's doing, he roams from room to room, and whoever's in that room, he walks up behind them, and he hits them as hard as he can. Just open palms loud, which is obviously something that I'm not promoting or want to encourage, and I would love to correct, and we're slowly working on that and hoping that that does not continue on into kindergarten, whatever kindergarten looks like in the next few months, right? But why is he doing this? He's doing this because he wants to connect. He wants to be in the presence of his family. He wants their attention. He wants their undivided attention. But he's doing it in a harmful way. He's doing it in a way that actually is against his better interest, right? Nobody wants to spend time with a kid that runs in and just open palm slaps you on the back and you don't have a shirt on and now you have a palm print on your body. Right? No one wants to spend time with that kid. But for him, that negative attention is better than no attention. This is what's happening in Babel. They want God's presence. They were kicked out of the garden. They want to reclaim God's presence. They're feeling vulnerable. They're feeling that wound. They're feeling like they're open to attack. They're feeling like things aren't going the way they want. They build a tower to try to get God to come down into their temple so that they can have the presence of God, but they're doing it in a harmful way. They're doing it in a way that they try to manipulate God. They're doing it in a way to try to control God. And God is going to have none of it. And I suggest that there's part of your life, or maybe a lot of your life, that is a tower you've built to try to heal that wound that you have too, to try to tap into the presence of God. And usually it comes in one of a few ways, right? Usually it's people. You use people in an unhealthy way. Usually it's possessions. Usually it's popularity. Usually it's power. Usually it's pleasure. It's a combination of all those things. But we are using these coping strategies, these healing techniques to try to fill the wound when ultimately at the bottom of it we know that it's the presence of God who feels, fills that wound the most, the fullest, to the fullest extent. So I'd love for you at some point to be thinking about how do we get God to try to come down? What are we doing to try to get God's attention? Are we running in and just slapping him as hard as we can? Is there other ways that we've been trying to heal the wound, maybe ignoring it. But I imagine there's a part of your life that's a tower that you're trying to build. What does God want you to feel? What does God want you to experience? God wants you to ultimately experience God's presence within you. And I'm going to go through the Bible quickly. You turn the page one chapter to Genesis 12, and God says to Abram, who turns into Abraham, leave your family, go to the land I will show you, and I will make your name great. I want you to see this, but only for a second, because this is my third point. Do you see what the Babylonians, I mean, the Babels, the Babelites, you see what they wanted in the Valley of Shinar? They wanted to make a name for themselves. You turn the page one page and God says, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your name great. God's presence is going to be now in this covenant people called Israel. God was going to bring God's presence back to the people, but they, but they, but they wanted to do it themselves. Second Samuel 7, David says, King David, 
I'm going to build you a temple so that your presence would be with us in this box, in this building. And God says, I haven't lived in a temple from the day I brought Israel out of Egypt up until now. Did I ever ask any of Israel's tribal leaders I pointed to shepherd my people, why haven't you built me a temple? God's saying, my presence is bigger than a box. It's bigger than a temple, but because God is gracious and because he knows that we need things, he says, David, I'll let you build me a temple, but you can't build it. Your hands are too bloody. I'll let your son, King Solomon, build it. And he does. And God puts his name there is what the language says. And his presence and his glory comes into this place, into this building. But ultimately, as followers of Jesus, we know at the beginning of the New Testament, when Jesus shows up, very first page of Jesus showing up as a baby, uh, God says his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is the fullest revelation of God's presence with us. And what we learn at Jesus' death is that when he dies, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this. The temple curtain is torn. The place that separated us from God, that is torn from top to bottom because God is breaking out of buildings. God's presence is not confined to buildings. And what we learn a couple chapters later in Acts 2 is that God's spirit is poured out on all people. God's presence isn't something that we have to try to get. The story of scripture is that God's presence is on us and in us. You are where God's presence is. And we are the temple of God. And it has nothing to do with a place or a time or a building because this is easily the worst building I've ever worshipped God in. Because it's not the space, right? It's us. We are where God's presence is. I know you were hoping for a quote from St. Maximus the Confessor this morning, so I'm going to oblige. He lived in the 600s, uh, amazing thinker and, and person who lived for Jesus. Those who seek the Lord should not look for him outside themselves. On the contrary, they must seek him within themselves through faith made manifest in action. The Holy Spirit is in us. Jesus has made this abundant and clear. John 14, John 15, he says, the Father and I are going to come make our home in you through the Holy Spirit. So we have attention. You have both a wound where you miss God's presence and you have the presence of God within you. And I don't know how to reconcile this well. And I thought long and hard about this. This really was a problem for me last night. How do we have both of these realities? And at first what I thought about was the Native American parable about two wolves in you, one's evil and one's good, and, and which one wins. And, and, and the, the end of the story is that it's whichever one you feed. And I would love for you to tell that. Like if you're going to feed your wound through trying to fill it with unholy things, uh, that's the thing that's going to be most prevalent in your life. But I, I, I feel like that's a, maybe kind of helpful, maybe not all the way helpful. Then I was like, how can we have both wounds and presence within us? How do we have both of these things? And then I felt like the Lord spoke to me, and it's not a powerful answer. Don't, this is not a setup for an aha moment. But what the Lord said to me was, I was like, how do, you ha- how do we have both? The presence should heal the wound. And I was like, I have a ton of wounds within me, and I believe the Holy Spirit's within me, right? Like, like that's not contradicted at all in that it's a complete reality. I have all kinds of wounds that I'm trying to, from, from childhood trauma, from my parents to getting dumped by that girl in seventh grade that I, you know, like that one time where I stood on stage in third grade and I said that my, my teacher was a, a girl and he was a boy and the whole school laughed at me. Like that still haunts me to this day and I'm absolutely confident that the Holy Spirit was within me, right? And so this side of heaven 
And this side of Jesus returning, we both we have both wounds. I mean, we have a wound and we have the presence of God within us. And that's the tension that we live in. It's the tension that we live. What does God want us to do to try to live in the reality that God's spirit lives within us? Here's what I'm taking from this passage. You may have a different takeaway. Learn to wait on God. Goodness will come. Learn to wait on God. Goodness will come. In the absence of God's presence, they took matters into their own hands to get what they want when they wanted it right away, right? Let's make a name for ourselves so that we don't have to follow God's mission. But if you flip the page, one page later, God is bringing what God has for us. And God doesn't even say, I'm going to make my name great. God gives us what we want when we wait for the Lord. The Psalms tell us he will give us the desires of our heart. They wanted their name to be made great, the the Babylites. And the next page, God says, I'm going to make your name great. And he says it to David, and he says it to Israel. And Jesus teaches us over and over again about greatness in the kingdom of God. God is going to give us the desire of our hearts if we wait for the Lord's will, the Lord's way, and in the Lord's time. But we are so bad at waiting. I was reading this story about Houston Airport baggage claim. Number one complaint at the airport was that people had to wait too long. So they hired more baggage folks to help get things speedily along, and it worked. They got it down below the, the industry average. You only had to wait eight minutes for your bags, and they still got a ton of complaints. And then they figured out the reason why, because it only took one minute to get from your plane to the baggage carousel. And so they fired all the baggage folks not all of them, a lot of them. And they moved the baggage carousel 10 minutes away. So now you had to walk from your plane for 10 minutes. By the time you got there, your bag was there. No more complaints. They asked a waiting expert why this is. And the waiting expert said, it's not that we have to wait. It's not even how long we have to wait. It's what we do while we're waiting. That's the part that drives us nuts. That's the part that makes it unbearable. And so we have to learn to wait that there's things we could do while we wait to help us wait. One more story about waiting gone wrong. It was my dad's 60th birthday two weeks ago, and I was going to make him some ribs. And I did this 3-2-1 method. Let me tell you, it's three hours of ribs on the grill, just low and slow. And then you wrap those in tinfoil, but you put a little apple juice, a little apple cider vinegar in them. Two hours on the grill like that. And then the last hour, you put some sauce on it, and you let that sit low and slow for an hour. I did all that. And then it says, the last 10 minutes, turn the heat up a little bit. Get that sauce nice and sticky for everybody. Bring it inside and serve it. And I went, I want this sauce to be extra sticky. So I turned my grill all the way up and I went inside to check on my corn and my, mash, my, my, my potato salad. And I was like, I better go get those ribs. They were literal charcoal. Oh. I spent six hours babying these things. It was going to be the best thing I'd ever eaten. Feast for kings on my dad's 60th birthday. Um, So this is not a picture of my ribs. I was too embarrassed to take them. They looked a little bit like this. The top one centimeter was fine. The rest of it was charcoal. So I took all the bones out and I cut it down the middle and we got to taste what they would have tasted like. It was very delicious. My dad was so um, honored 
Uh, and he, I was embarrassed and sad. Why did that happen? I didn't do, I was, I was patient for six hours, but it was the last little bit that messed it up, right? It was the last little bit of me not being patient, of me not following directions, of me thinking that I know better, of me trying to figure something out on my own, that I messed it up. I was faithful for five hours and 50 minutes. And it was in that last 10 minutes that I was too impatient to do what I was supposed to do. And I burnt it. The Lord is encouraging us to wait for God's will, God's way, and in God's time. If the Babylonians would have just waited one page, I know that's not how history works. It's not a one-page deal. But one page later, God is giving humanity what God, what, what humans want, and they did not wait the page. One of my heroes, Eugene Peterson, says, waiting in prayer is a disciplined refusal to act before God acts. And so my takeaway from this story is that I need to not come up with a plan move forward with the plan, and ask God to bless the plan on the way out the door. That is much better for us if we listen to God, join in God's mission, and wait for God to act and join in with what God is doing. Here's just a few verses to encourage you to learn how to wait well. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord twice there. For the evildoers shall be cut off, Babel, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. He will give us what we ask for when we wait for the Lord's will, the Lord's way, and in the Lord's time. A big part about practicing the presence of God is learning to patiently wait, but the Lord is faithful and just, and our waiting will be rewarded. Any, any questions before we move on? I got one that I kind of alluded to earlier. Someone texted uh, in the 915. How do you talk with non-believers and skeptics when they try to debunk scripture by saying this isn't real? And I alluded to that earlier because I, I, I feel like uh, it's a fruitless conversation. First of all, I can't prove that it's real. I believe that they're real. Sometimes we have geological evidence that they're real or not real or whatever. Uh, but at the end of the day, whether or not it happened is way less formative for my faith than why we tell the story and how we tell the story. And so I'd much rather steer the conversation about did this happen, is it real, or if this isn't real, into more of a question of uh, why did the Jews tell the story for 3,000 years? Why do Christians tell this story? And how is it meaningful for me? And the reason why I think it's important to steer the conversation that way is because no one can argue with your story. If it truly is formative for you, if it truly is transformational for you, if it has done work in your life, which is what these stories are meant to do, someone can't argue with that. Real or not real, that's an argument and a debate that I'm not qualified to solve. But does it make a difference in my life? Yeah, it has. And that to me is a much more powerful conversation. So that's what I try to steer from. And, and like I said, people can't argue with stories. But the problem is you have to live the story for it to be true, right? And that's where, the, that's where our part comes in with that. If you're going to use that against folks that don't believe, uh, you got to live it real and live it well. Any more questions or comments? Great. Let's summarize. Head. What God wants us to know is that we all have a wound and we all try to heal it ourselves in some way. I mean, that's just humanity. But at the end of the day, uh, God has the cure for the wound. 
uh, of missing God's presence. It's that God has planted God's presence within us. It's within us. It's within you. It's within me. St. Maximus, the confessor, says, don't look for it outside of yourself. It's not in the box. It's not in the tower. It's not in the whatever. It's not that time, Sunday morning. God's Holy Spirit dwells within you. And hand. What does God want us to do? One of the major lessons in practicing the presence of God is learning to wait on the Lord patiently. Your spiritual practice for this week. And then we'll pray. I would love for you to pick a small decision in your life. Something that doesn't have a time frame. Something that uh, you have to make a decision about but maybe isn't um, super pressing. And I would love for you to just not move until you hear from God. I have staked my entire career on the belief that we experience Jesus and that God speaks to us. I'm not, I don't know if it's all the time. Some people, it might be. But I believe firmly that God does speak to us and we can experience God regularly in our lives. And so my encouragement is to pick something small and don't move until you hear the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for your presence. That's the good news of the story. Ultimately, and at the end of the day, we desire your presence. We act out to get your presence. We do all kinds of things to, to, to try to feel or earn or acquire your love, your peace, your joy, your presence in our life. And the good news is that you have a plan. You have a mission to bring your presence into our life. And it is there. Lord, would your Holy Spirit give us the strength to wait patiently on you, for you. Would we not move until we hear you move? Would you help us to be people of extreme patience, long-suffering, people who wait, disciplined refusal to act until we know where you are, what you're doing, and how you've invited us into that. Thank you, Father, that your presence is with us. Thank you for times like this communion where you promise to meet us here. Commune with us as we come forward, we we come with anticipation and expectation of hearing and receiving from you. Beloved, would you pray with me now the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us.